Falsha, Falsha, Harjagil. Welcome to episode 52 of the Rebel Matters podcast. Opening today's show with a bit of a whack off the meditation bowl, just to get us all in the right mood and bring a wee bit of namaste to the proceedings. It has been a mental couple of weeks. It really has. It's been, there's been a lot of things happening going on uh, the last number of weeks. I think the, the pinnacle of it was the gym jam on which is the 20th of July, which is nearly a month ago now. But would you believe I'm still kind of recovering from it? I think I've got my mojo back now, but it did take a long time to uh, get back on track after the gym jam, and which is why we had a bit of a break on the podcast. And I think that with the everything that's been going on, you see the lead up to the gym jam, it was like it was like a twister. One of those whirlwind things from like the one from The Wizard of Oz where it just started small and it started getting bigger and bigger and the more momentum it got, the less the less resistance it had and things just kept everything was good, it was all going in the right direction and we were all pulling together like a really strong crew. Everyone was looking out for each other, helping each other out with jobs that needed to get done to make the gym jam happen. Which was a massive success, as I've talked about in the last episode already, but we were raising money for the Palestine Community Gym and we raised between fifteen and 16,000 euros in one day to make that project of opening a community-based gym in the Ada Refugee Camp a reality. And there was just such a big lead-up into the Gym Jam. And I suppose we were kind of against the clock as well that everything just had to get done by a certain time and there were other things in the mix as well the Ackley of course was uh, still the show had had to keep on the road there as well and just between one thing and the other from a personal point of view I think there was a massive release after the gym jam and I thought as soon as the gym jam was finished on the early hours of Sunday morning went to bed for a couple of hours and then went back in to Ackley to start to clean up with everybody else and I kind of just had it in my head that we were just going to go straight into the next phase of the project, straight into organising the equipment to get the equipment over there to the gym and then just get over to the location and set the thing up. But I think after a couple of days and a, or, and a week or so that I just realised that I was actually knackered and needed to take a little step back from a few things and try and slow the pace down a little bit to try and recover some energy and get the mojo back. It seemed like I just felt like I was very low on energy. I was trying really hard to get things back on track and trying to get stuck in with a few different projects that we have with Ackley and trying to get the podcast up and running again. And between one thing and the other, I just kind of let the little routines that were keeping me together slip I wasn't paying as much attention to the routine that I did have in the morning and I wasn't doing as many training sessions or taking time out actually wasn't reading as much either and last week I just realized that I'd kind of worked myself up in the big tense ball and it was a nice realization to have because I started to unpack things a little bit and take things back a level or two. Um, and really, I kind of just got back into the morning routine of taking time to make a nice cup of coffee and doing a bit of reading, spending a bit of time 
doing some breathing practice or meditation. I got a, some cracker sleeps where I was in a position where I didn't have to set my alarm in the morning and just slept until I woke up naturally. Set some set time aside for cooking food because in the lead up to the gym jam, everything was just on the go. It was just like getting food, eating it quite fast or eating it on the go and then getting back to the grindstone to try and get the next job done to make it happen. So started paying a bit more attention to cooking food and getting back to doing something creative that didn't have a time pressure on it. Actually, one of the projects that I was working on this week was, which is a little bit connected with, with the podcast that I think we're going to do today. I was up in Belfast at Christmas, so eight months ago, and I was over in my granny's house and there was this big, huge bag of newspaper clippings that she asked me to put in the bin. And it was actually a bag of newspaper clippings from things that um, my dad had been in the newspaper for over the years and some of the stuff that me and my brothers had been in the papers for and a couple of other of my aunts and uncles. And I just took the bag instead of putting it in the bin and I have it down here now and I was just going through them and making a bit of a scrapbook for them and putting the first thing I did was to put them in order of year so there's papers going back to the 1970s all the way up to the mid 2000s and I'm making a little bit of a scrapbook with it but just doing a little bit of arts and crafts was a really nice way to get the head into a bit of a better place doing something creative I guess focuses the mind and gets the all the rubbish stuff away out of the way and also one thing that I, that I really enjoyed doing was going back to the basics and some stuff so I had been training away every morning at six o'clock with um Cahill who was living in Cork at the time but who's now living in Dublin and we were getting up at like five half five getting into the gym for six and doing a good session but then after he left me down in Cork and moved to Dublin I kind of got out of the habit of doing that and then took a break from the training for a little while after the gym jam anyway and with the training to get it started again I just wanted to go back to the basics and what I actually did the other day was a lovely training session in Olympic weightlifting and just did some practice on my cleans which I posted on the actually social media account actually but it was a nice training session because it was the first time in nine years since I practiced any of the Olympic weightlifting sessions and it kind of made me think back to the days when I was in the University of Limerick when the UL Weightlifting Club was founded I think in 2004 uh, I was training at that time with Eamon Flanagan and uh, Cahill Bird, Andy Murphy Barry, Barry Vaughan Sean O'Sullivan was in there as well Sinead Redden and we all trained together and had a nice little group on the, on the go there. And then that got me thinking about the time that me and Carbra stepped into the Beachmount Leisure Centre where the weightlifting club was there at the time. And it was run by a man who has passed away now, Eddie Finnegan, was the first person to introduce us to the Olympic weightlifting exercises. And this was like a real old school gym. This was in a squash court, so it only had one of those really small doors, no windows, and the weights were just placed around the, the corner, in the corner between the floor and the walls, just kind of stacked up neatly against the walls. And there was 
a couple of makeshift platforms, one squat rack and one place for bench pressing. And the training sessions in there used to be as old school as they get. You just go in and you do 10 sets of 10 of basically everything. 10, sorry, 10 sets of snatch, 10 sets of clean and jerk, a few more sets of clean, some squats, and then finish off with maybe um, some bench pressing. Good sessions were on for two hours. And there was no music allowed. It was just Eddie would say, if you're here to train or you're here to listen to music, you can listen to music later on. And it was a, it was a real pure form of training. And the first thing that Eddie said to us one day was, see if you ever take steroids, you are already here. I'll know straight away and just straight out the gap. And he was just a man who just loved doing the basics, doing them right, training hard and um, focusing on what you were doing which I think is why going back to your roots is such a nice thing because you just pick one thing and it brings you back in time or it brings you back to the time where you were really focused on doing that one thing. And that's another thing that uh, I started doing with the workload that I had. There's a book that I read a few years ago called The One Thing. I can't remember who wrote it now, but it's well worth checking it out. And it makes perfect sense. And when you think about it, probably doesn't even need a book but to to explain it but the idea of the book is that we can only do one thing at a time and it's in the book which is really uh probably a lot of the value that's in the book is just strategies of being able to pick that one thing pick the one thing that you want to be working on at this moment in time and then being able to put the other things aside or out of your head for a while and focusing just on that one thing the book is actually called the one thing as well and i have a whiteboard that I've been using for planning out the podcast episodes and stuff like that and I just rubbed out a wee space on it and put a box into it and the title on the box is The One Thing and Rudder Wine uh, and that's the one thing that I wanted to be working on for the day and I just rub rub it out at the start of the day and put the, the one thing into it and the one thing that I have today in that box is episode 52 of the Rebel Matters podcast and this is also a kind of creative thing that, that gives me the space to put the other stuff aside for a while. Um, there are a lot of things going on at, at Ackley. Actually, as it, as it happens, Ackley is six years open this week. On Tomorrow, actually, on the 17th of August, will be six years in business. And we're, we have a couple of events this weekend to, I guess, to kind of celebrate that or just to mark the occasion. Tonight, we're doing our very first storytelling night in the social space at Ackley where people can bring a story along or read a story from a book or have it in their head or sing a song or just come down and listen to some tall tales or folk tales or myths from anywhere around the world and... I have a couple of lovely books that I've been reading through and picking stories out of and one or two stories that I've got lined up for tonight and it should be a bit of crack. I think that it really ties in with what we do at Ackley because it just is another form of bringing people together to share in a nice experience and the the folklore stories that we have in Ireland are so rich and also entertaining that I think it's going to be a good night. And then tomorrow we've got the long table lunch, the Lone Moor which has been on the go for the last number of years. Four years, I think, we've had the Lone Moor on the go now. And that's just another thing where that brings people together. What happens at the Lone Moor events is we have a long table. I think the table is about 40 foot long. We have loads of seats and people can bring food along 
to share. People just cook food, bring it along, and we share it. And we have good tunes, good crack, and people bring their friends, family members, kids, pets along, and we just sit there and share that experience together for a few hours, which actually every time we do it, I just ask myself, why do people not do this more often? Because it's it doesn't really cost any money. All you need is a space and some people to cook food and bring it along and uh, it's such a nice thing because it's a it's a social a social get together people are sharing food together people are interacting with each other having a laugh having a blowout talking about stuff and then sometimes the the lone war just carries on and people go out for a couple of drinks afterwards which is also a really nice thing so actually if you're listening to this today on the day that it's coming out which is friday the 16th of august you might still have time to come along to the storytelling, but you'll definitely have time to come and drop in to the Lone War. It's a free event. Everybody's welcome. It's not connected with anything to do with being a member or doing personal training at Ackley. Just come along and uh, enjoy. There's a lot of stuff going on in Cork in general at the minute, actually. There's good news for the podcast, which I haven't got the full details to give you right now because we're still confirming, but I can say that there is... The very first Cork Podcast Festival is going to happen between the 10th and the 11th of October in Cork. And there's going to be events on in the Opera House, the Crawford Art Gallery, the River Lee, um, different bookshops, record shops, and Spalbine Fanock, and also in the Kino, which is another part of the big news that hit Cork this week. Ed O'Leary and Joe Kelly, who organised the... Um, who organise the Levis St Luke's events and ran the It Takes a Village Festival this year, which we did a live podcast in with the TPM. Lads, we can go back and listen to that if you want to as well. It was the very first live in front of an audience podcast. But Ed and Joe have are taken over the keynote. And it's big news for Cork because it's going to be another great live music venue right in the middle of the city centre not too far from where Ackley is and I think it's going to add a lot to the add a lot to the city and actually the lads Ed and Joe are also organising this uh, Cork Podcast Festival which we are going to be taking part in so I'll keep you informed whenever I know whenever I know you'll know keep us informed on what kind of a, a part we're going to play in the Cork Podcast Festival with the Rebel Matters podcast but you should go and check it out anyway because there's loads of class podcasts that are that have already been fully scheduled and go and check out the Cork, Cork Podcast Festival on your social media or on the website and also go and find out what the crack is with the keynote really interesting to see that, that that's happening and very exciting times as well Anyway, as I mentioned last week, I am working on a series of a, a folklore series for the Rebel Matters podcast, and I've been in touch with quite a few absolute legends who are willing to spend a bit of time with me and talk about uh, folklore and mythology. But as I just mentioned, it has been uh, kind of a challenging time to get things back on track after the the big crescendo that was the gym jam and the release of energy that that caused and the kind of um, aftermath of getting things back in order uh, after organising that big event organising that big event and um, 
I haven't started doing the interviews with people for that yet because I haven't been able to get the time away from Cork. And also, I thought it would be nice just to maybe bring in some of the some of the challenges that come along with you know making this podcast and keeping it up in the air along with Ackley and along with the Palestine Community Gym Project and also the fact that Ackley is six years on the go this year I thought it would be nice actually there's something else that uh, we'll talk about that in a second the, because Ackley is six years on the go this year I thought it would be nice to maybe have a little um, review of the things that have been the best and the things that have been the most challenging and what I would kind of see for the future of actually as it relates to what we're doing as a business but I, I guess it's kind of relevant to anyone else out there who works in a small business or who's had these challenges six years seems like quite a long time now when I look back at it but the time has flown it has it has had like really tough challenges and uh, lots of beautiful moments as well I think that if I'm looking back at it now the thing that probably the biggest lesson one of the biggest lessons learned from the last six years of running Ackley as a personal training facility in Cork City Centre is the realising the absolute bullshit that is the the fitness industry in general and seeing uh, an industry as such that is so-called it designed for our health uh, doing nearly the opposite in a lot of times is something that really gets under my skin and it is a really big driving force behind what we do at actually to try and be an alternative to the, the kind of standard commercial health and fitness industry like when you think I've mentioned this before on the podcast but if you think about a standard commercial gym where supposedly health is meant to be the main thing that is being promoted and encouraged there and you go in and then a lot of the time the, the training mentality is based around how we look and it becomes very superficial. There can be pictures of models on the wall. If you go in, there's mirrors all over the shop, which if you're wanting to work on your your fitness or your health in general, and you've come from a place where you're, you're not happy with it at the current moment in time, it's very likely that you're coming from a place of being self-conscious. And a lot of people don't like seeing themselves in the mirror when they're in that state. And also then the places are filled up with, filled up with, um, with screens. And I think that getting away from screens... Spending as uh, reducing our screen time, screen time is one of the most essential components of health these days, and I include myself in that as well. I realised that recently I've been spending a lot of time looking at screens, and I got into the habit of having my phone by my bedside, which is another one of the things that I checked in with myself about recently when I was just doing a little uh, doing a little mental health check in over the last few weeks and I think that it is a positive move to, to spend less time on the screens and especially not to have any screens by the bedside because I got into the habit of looking at my phone in the morning and you just haven't got any control over what's going to come up on your social media feed when you pop that up could be some negative vibes coming out of there and then you're getting the day off on a bad start and one of the things that I have definitely realised over the last while is that it's very important for me to have a positive routine in the morning to get the day off to a good start and another thing that does my head in about commercial gyms is that there's no real need for communication between people in that setting for example most of the machines have instructions on them or they're all designed so that 
you can just go in and do it by yourself and there's there's no need for an interaction with a coach or with someone else who's in the gym. A lot of people wear headphones when they go to the gym, which is fine if you want to just go in there and zone out. But for me, a connection between people is also an essential component of health as well as... Um, as well as the other thing, as well as food and having a, a some a space for doing something creative, connections between people is a very important thing. And it's something that we place a lot of emphasis on in Ackley, but it's not something that is emphasised at all in the in the kind of standard health and fitness industry. It's all about just being uh, on your lonesome in there with your headphones on, doing some exercises that you think you're going to look good for Instagram, and I think that's quite a negative thing, all in all. And another thing that does my head in about the the nonsense of the health health and fitness industry is how everything is put into little pigeonholes, and that we're commodified as consumers, consumers for um, products that are going to supposedly change how we look or make us feel like better people. Consumers for uh, nutritional products that don't really have anything to do with food or nutrition in the sense that they don't encourage positive nutrition habits and don't encourage people to come together to eat together and to share the experiences of food and again all those things even though they seem quite negative as i'm speaking speaking about them here they're all things that we've taken lessons from and actually to try and do something that's an alternative form of that that's why we have got a form of training that is really focused on bringing a coach and the member together and working together to um, learn how to train, to get stronger and more mobile. It's a form of training that also brings members together and that they're interacting with each other in one way, shape or form, and also one that helps the person who's training learn more about their bodies and explore their bodies, regain confidence in, in their movement and stuff like that which is all based on connection, connection between the coach and the person who's training, connection between two people who are training and connection between the person who's training and themselves. And that's why we have the book club. It's a social space where people can come and talk about books. And that's another opportunity to be away from screens and encouraging a bit of time to um, read and learn from books. That's also why we have the Lone More Long Table Lunch events, brings people together. Uh, people share recipes, people share food, people share a good time and listen to good music. And the latest thing then is the storytelling, which is just another way of getting people together and doing something that's kind of creative. Also a good brain exercise to try and learn a story, which is what I'm going to do as soon as this podcast is finished. I'm going to go and read a few stories from the books that I've been reading. Um, really nice collections of uh, folklore stories. And I'm going to pick one out that... Uh, I think would be cool to do for tonight and learn it as best as I can and then try and share it with the whoever shows up to this event tonight. And I think the best thing from the last six years of running Ackley has definitely been the people that that we've come in contact with. We have such a great team. So like grateful for the for the team that we have at Ackley at the minute. Steph and Alan and Batiste and myself work really well together and they uh, maybe this would be a good opportunity to say a massive thank you to them for all the work that they do. And then there's the extended team, uh, people who have helped with running other events and uh, 
Billy O'Connell deserves a massive shout out there. Billy does massages. Billy does massages at the gym every week. And the massages are done on a donation basis and all the money that is raised from the doni- from the donations for the massages goes to well this year they're going to the um this year they're going to the Palestine Community Gym project and last year the money went towards the wheelchair rugby teams the Irish wheelchair rugby teams trip to the World Championships in Australia so if you, if you want to book a massage with Billy just get in touch with us uh, through the Ackley Instagram account or Facebook or website Ackley.ie so there's that extended team as well and there's also the the members what a massive group of legends there are the members who come and train with us every day of the week except for Sunday which is when we're closed but all the other days and it's just such a class it's just a class and rewarding experience to have members coming in training with us and enjoying what we're doing and enjoying their time with us and then to see the members getting together outside of the training setting and organising hikes and coming on board to help us organise events like the book club and all those other things is uh, a very beautiful thing to see we actually have a whatsapp group set up so if anybody is in cork who wants to be a part of that whatsapp group you don't have to be a member of actually to be in there it's just the whatsapp group that we set up for people who want to like who are interested in getting together and going for hikes or going to the beach and stuff like that together and you can drop into it and drop out of it as much as as much or as little as you want to and um, if you want to do that you just uh Get in touch with us on the Ackley social media pages, Ackley underscore Cork, or the Ackley, uh, Ackley Strength and Movement on Facebook or Ackley.ie, and we'll stick into it, and you can be a part of that WhatsApp group. It's a really nice way to get out to places that you might not be able to get to if you haven't got a car, or if you felt like you want to do some hikes but you're not sure where to go, or would like to go to the beach, and then be a part of that WhatsApp group. Class. Uh, I think that for the future of Ackley anyway that we would like to just build on on build on what we're doing creating more positive vibes and building our business like the business is is going well as well it wasn't, it, that's important to say as well it's um, it is a personal training business and it's going very well it's thriving but it's built on positive vibes and it's built on building people up as opposed to playing on people's insecurities which is another one of those things that just does my head in about the fitness industry in general we don't do before and after pictures or we don't do photoshop we don't shame people into feeling like absolute shite and then offer them the you know quote unquote solution it's just based on bringing people together and it's based on training that's built to suit the person who's training their goals and how their body is moving and it's built on cooperation with the coach to keep on being able to train uh, through obstacles and change training programs as and when we need to and keep on moving in the right direction and it's about creating an inclusive envi- environment to train in as well for everyone who trains there for uh, young people, older people people who have additional needs when it comes to getting from A to B, people who are using wheelchairs or um, people who just need a little bit of extra help to get the job done it's about creating a kind of an inclusive and an equal environment for everyone to participate in together which creates a very nice atmosphere i have to say when you see it if you've ever seen one of our training sessions in full flow where there's that mix of abilities when it comes to movement uh taking part in the training session it's really a lovely thing to see and yeah anyway you can go and check out the social media if you want to find out a little bit more about that 
So, what else? This year, this week actually marks 50 years since the British Army landed in Ireland. And I thought it might be a good opportunity to talk about that a little bit and highlight a few of the key events that brought that about. And as I'm sure that you're very well aware, I am not a historian and this is not a history podcast. There are documentaries and historians and books out there that would be able to give you a way more accurate description of what happened in the lead up to the British Army landing in Ireland 50 years ago than I will. But at the same time, I just thought it would be interesting just to go back and look at some of the events and talk about them a little bit that might end up spurring you going on to find out more about it. So in advance, I will put a little disclaimer and say that uh, if there are any historical inaccuracies here, it's not on purpose and this is not a history podcast. And also probably important to say a lot of my friends go to Belfast and they ask they ask me questions and ask me what they should do this might actually be a nice podcast to be able to share with people that are going up to Belfast uh, from now on and but it's a I always find it important an important thing to say that whatever whenever people ask me about Belfast and what it's like and uh, ask about the political situation there I do my best to be as impartial as possible, but I have an inbuilt bias because uh, of being from from a nationalist area in Belfast and uh, having kind of, I guess, Republican inclinations when it comes to what went on in Ireland and what's still going on in Ireland. And it's impossible to be completely impartial. And I don't think people actually want... Uh, a total impartiality when they're asking someone who's from the local area about what's going on. It's important to take that into consideration as well with the stuff that uh, maybe we can highlight or bring up in, in the rest of this little podcast right here. Also, as I was saying, when I was up in Belfast at Christmas there, and when I got those collection of newspaper clippings from my granny's house, I also recorded some of the chats that we were having that day. So I've got some audio clips from my granny remembering back to the times when she lived uh, down on the Lower Falls Road in the 60s and some of her recollections from uh, some things that happened during the years of conflict in the Occupied Six. So I'll stick those in to this podcast as well. It's actually quite hard to figure out a starting point when we're talking about like the war that went on in the six counties and the arrival of, of the British army because when they arrived wasn't the start of the trouble and the tension and the conflict. It had been going on since really the partition of the country and even before that there. How many brothers and sisters did you have? Any, all together? My mother had ten of a family. Now one wee boy was toddling about, born and toddling about and died before I was born. But she, uh, Whenever my my mother was a widow when she was in her forties, she had nine of a family, nine children. Where were you in the order? The house that they lived in. I was um, Sean's the youngest, and I was the second youngest. Sean was the baby. And I was so we were. I was about. I was about. Uh, about six or seven before I died or something. 
Would, would you still remember him? Huh? Would you still remember him? Barely. I can remember him barely. But Margaret says she always remembers him. My father, she's about Margaret's, there's only three of us living, Sean and Margaret and me. And Margaret's not too well, she's very feel. But, um, <coughs> three of us, that's right, Sean and Margaret. Sean was a baby. And my mother had five sons. Tell me, Joe. No, is it Joe? Tell me, Polly, Davy, and Sean. And the wee boy died, just six sons. What, what was Margaret saying then about your dad? What was what? You said Margaret was said used to say something about your dad. Margaret said she remembers my father, God rest her soul, but the day he died, when he was going out, she was really playing in the streets, you know, the new garden houses, and she always remembers him saying, "I remember, girl, you have your homework to do." And I said she always she always remembers my father for that, and like we were only kids, you know. We shut just outside the house, was he? Hmm? Was he shot just outside the house? Down uh, McDonald Street. That was just... Actually, I was at my, uncle, my, my mother's brother's house, my uncle Willie. Just, I was... He went over and he said, oh, that's our Joe, and, and, you know, that's what happened there, you know. But do you know what happened to him? He was shot. Do, do you know what for or whatever? It was steak. Steak. That's all he could do about that. That was it. She was left for all those children. <clears throat> was there much of an uproar after it happened? Couldn't tell you anything about it. It was all in the papers and things like that. Couldn't tell you anything about it. We were too young and people didn't talk about things, you know. How long did you work in that Mayfair place for? Well, when I was young, I worked in there when I started work. We worked. It was it's all. So I worked in it for a few years. Worked in left and then went back again. Worked in it for a few years. What age were you when you started? Oh, well, we all were working from we were 14, 15. I left school. The teacher had me down for the going for all the exams. I shall have to catch me. I'll be away. I think that happened. <laughs> you left school at terms, and my birthday was in June. Now we all stopped at the end of June for our six weeks holidays, you know, schools were closed. And when the back opened again, when I should have been going to the exams, I was working. Because I left school, that was the end of the term, June, and then the next thing would have been August and September or something like that. Things went as in those days. Was it hard work? Well, it was sitting with a sewing machine, making clothes, making, we made underwear. What did you do with the money? Did you have to give it to your mum? Oh, you give your mother your, give your mother your money, and she give you a couple of shillings out of it, or things like that. You know.
up until January 1969, my granny and her family would have been living down in Bombay Street and actually moved out in January up to where they're, they're living now. But between the 12th and the 16th of August, 69, is where loads of riots broke out all around uh, the north. The Battle of the Bogside happened uh, between the 12th and the 14th of August when uh, the people of the Bogside came together to defend the area, keep the security forces out. And actually, there was a real fear in the Bogside at the time that the there was going to be like a massacre of the, the Catholic population there and the residents started Radio Free Derry at the time and a quote that I just whipped this off um, the Wikipedia of the Battle of the Bog said that there was a statement read out on the um, Radio Free Derry a war of genocide is about to flare across the north the CRA which is the Civil Rights Association demands that all Irish men recognise their common interdependence and calls upon the government and the people of the 26 counties to act now to prevent a general national disaster we urgently request the government take immediate action to have a United Nations peacekeeping force sent to Derry and then the um, riots started off then in um, Belfast in and around about the same time and I think that a lot of people feared for their safety at the time that the houses were going to get burnt out the IRA weren't uh, massively active or equipped to defend the areas at the time but then did their best to keep uh, keeping like mobs out of the area. On the 15th of August the attack on Bombay Street happened when uh, a loyalist mob along with members of security forces came down into the street and started burning out the Catholic houses there and then people had just had to flee, grab whatever they could and run away. At the time my granny had already moved out of Bombay Street but still would have had um, friends and family there in, in and around that area. Um, the streets that were attacked were Bombay Street and uh, Cooper Street and Kashmir Road. Houses were also burnt out there and there was a young uh, member of Nafina Jerry McCauley was shot dead on Bombay Street as well as he was helping people um, helping people get out of their houses on time with whatever they could grab this next week clip here is McGranny talking about uh, their time when they were living down there and the tensions that were building up in the area beforehand she speaks about my uh, my granda and hers conversation about uh Loyalist families hanging buntings from their own house across the Catholic houses, and my granddad was in favour of just letting them do it if it kept the peace. And eventually, all these tensions kind of boiled over, and resulted in the in the burning of a lot of Catholic houses. And then the British army actually came when they arrived. They came as as kind of a form of protection for for the Catholic houses. And when they did arrive, they were welcomed uh, at at the start, but then it soon became obvious that the British army were there to serve the the needs of the, the loyalist and unionist government that was in power and stormed at the time and then, and then stopped being a defensive force for the Catholic areas and more of a puppet for the British state and that's I think that's a, a very brief or simplistic way of, of describing how the, the conflict then kicked off of course there were massive events that happened for example the Ballamurphy massacre 
uh, Bloody Sunday and also the false curfew that the British Army actively uh, actively took part in or orchestrated that turned the Catholic communities completely against them and nationalist communities completely against them. My granny actually talks a little bit about the false curfew as well when one of her brothers, Sean, who's my great uncle, got caught up in the curfew and got arrested because he was outside after the curfew time and got put into a jeep with someone who I believe he thought had been killed at the time and was in the back of an army jeep and he got thrown into the back of the jeep as well. So have a little listen to this here. Uh, how did you make Brandon then? Hey, how did you meet Granda? Actually, he didn't live far from us. We just all knew her. Did he ask you out on a date? Hmm? Did he ask you out on a date? Well, you just all sort of went about again, and the next thing you know, you just sort of paired off together. <laughs> <laughs> Were you going to dances? Okay, we used to go to pictures a lot, and then we dances. So I used to love the dances. Not many things had hardly changed now, like. Granddad, did he have any brothers and sisters? No, he had one brother, I think. Didn't know much about them, to tell you the truth, like it. His family? How come? Hey? How come? How come, Mum? You And the shot, the Seamus, the shot lit up there too. That's right, I remember now. You know, they built up the houses in Bombay Street. That's again. right, that's that's just what they did. They built the houses. You see, they bombed the other side, the other ones, the other side, blew, uh, came in and shot it all around it. Burned it up. And the, their house, but that girl, I know her, she, and she was interviewed, she lived, and she says that's the second time they've done that street. What was it like then, there, when you were living there? It was all like I we liked it all I liked it, but <coughs> I remember when we were we were cut out would have come out of Bombay Street and we went into Cooper Street. That was a big street led you right down to near where we lived in the falls. And it was the twelfth of July coming up and it had see it was mixed, it was Protestants and Catholics. And I I had the Catholics the plans were put buttons up and they started their own house. And come over there, and maybe that was a Catholic. And I remember your daddy saying to me, well, I wouldn't let them do that. I said, Well, I tell you, if it brings peace, makes peace, because they had the buttons, oh, there were their buttons, red, white, and blue thing, but they put them, so this would have been a Catholic house. And you'd ask me, I, the one that, I said, Well, listen, if that keeps peace down, that's not for all it takes. 
Do you see just after that the shut room bump they come out and shut them, shut room, Cooper Street. <laughs> I said, Oh secret honey gone, they were good enough to let them put their buttons in. God rest my brother, our party was come past that day. And he says, God was wrong, she was crying. He says, What's wrong? He says, After ten months they get out. Look, just put them out of their house and put the Catholics out. Back then, did you tell me before that you would have, you used to walk onto the Shankill Road for the shopping back then? I was sure I was, I was, we always used to do a lot of shopping on the Shankill Road. And there was one shop, and you know what we got on it? I went to it for your daddy's uniform for St Mary's. I was a partisan. And they took orders. Good, but I wouldn't do it now. <laughs> so the troubles were terrible. But that time in Bombay Street, I probably, God rest him, like he's a brother. He says, let's go on. I said, what's wrong, everybody? Oh, just put us out. They just dropped the door and told them to get out. The Catholics. And uh, see, our Sean and Kathleen, when they were married first, she's originally from the market. You know the market, don't you? But then she, so they got a house across the Grafner Road, not far from where I live. And again, they were Protestants, but the Catholics were beginning to move in. And uh, <laughs> I says, I he's happy to feel love among them. But however, they were doing all right. But they were glad to go because <laughs> Sean says it started to form up their bonds outside their door and all those things. I was terrified. To live. It was worse years ago, you know. But uh, so that's why they got out. And then when we left Bombay, uh, Ormond Street, they got in, I left, They went into our house. Up with your dad's the house your daddy was like born in Rurden oh, Uncle Sean went in there and Sean was there after uh, I think Paddy was in the front way was it no maybe he wasn't were no, you, Sean were you living? Sean, Sean lived that's what it was Sean lived in that street with the, the, uh, the family street it was always Protestants but the Catholics would begin to move in but he says we're getting them outside their door starting up their door Drums, no. So then we left that house. They they moved in. Yeah. So we moved down the Falls Road during the, the curfew. The Brits had the curfew on the on the streets. I suppose it was. Well, no, well we were. I think we were in Bombay Street at the time. Is it, I think you told me one time that um, Sean got arrested because he was coming home from work. Oh God, yes, right. He was. Oh, I, I forgot about that. But that was on the Falls, and. Uh, what happened? But he was. We were still waiting for him. I showed nothing. He was inside. He was out at the wrong time of a curfew or something, wasn't it? And he put on the phone. What did I hear him about that? Put on the phone. And it like, frightened him, you know, he wasn't fuzzy. He came up here and he. Or whatever it was, been bummed, but I was in Bombay Street at the time, I can't remember. But that gave him an awful fright. Did you tell me one? Did they put him into the jeep with a fella that was dead? Yes, that's right. That's what it was. He says there, he had been shot. I think so. They had threw him in. There you go. It's awful. Like the, frightened you like right enough, you know. I wonder if been people out on the on the streets with the bin lids when you were there. Well, you see that bin lid business was done apparently years ago. Years ago, when it was was always troubled with them, and the women, the, the women used to go out. And rattled their business when they were past, not that everybody else knew they were there. So some of them started 
but that's trouble there. They've got they've got lead some bank to grow up. Let everybody know. Were you ever out with a bandit? Not at all. I wasn't out with a bandit. We didn't need to go. I wasn't going to bandit. Oh, why we were passing and then there was a oh, bit in the bandit's on the ground. Because the Brits were coming up and letting everybody know. <laughs> it was a laughable, wasn't it? But laughable because it was terrible deaths, you know. Wasn't there somebody out of Bombay Street? I think. Or was he inside? Because when we lived in Bombay Street, oh, that's right. It was a friend of somebody was caught up and lived opposite us in Bombay Street. Well, it was Tom McWilliam, Tom Williams. Tom was Williams. hanged in prison. Oh, that's quite. Well, that was, we were at school at that time. We were kids at school, but he was hanged. 1948, that was. Something that, well, now it must have been before that. Because we were only kids in school. And we went to, I remember, so we didn't even live far from the school, you know. And we were down to school, and there was a big woman. <laughs> Big woman, tough. You know, it's always people. Don't you don't get to school today? Nobody get into school. Let's go into school because Tom Williams was getting hanged. And we come up, I come up home, said, "Don't let us into school." You know, uh, he was uh, He was only a young lad. He was hanged. <coughs> and there was as much peace as what there is now. But there were people were tortured. You know, and listening to my mother talking about the times they had. You know. <laughs> what was you saying? That was awful, like, troubles and no, no money or anything. There we go, a card to Gail. I think we're going to leave it there for this week for the main part of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that and I hope it'll give you a bit more of an insight into the kind of stuff that was happening back in the late 60s. I certainly enjoyed sitting down and having the wee chats with my granny and being able to share them with you. And... I'm hoping that now next week I'm going to be able to get stuck into this folklore um, series for the podcast and I'm actually going to go after we're finished here and learn a couple of stories as I was saying for our storytelling night tonight. If you want to support the podcast as usual you can go to the Patreon page actually go to rebelmatters.ie which is the website for the podcast and you can see all the rest of the episodes links to different platforms to listen to it a few blog posts and also the link to the Patreon account where you can sign up for a wee monthly subscription to help support the podcast. I really want to get the podcast to be covering its own costs and I think it costs about 50 or 60 quid an episode um, to do the podcasts between uh, travelling around to meet people to do them and the monthly subscriptions that I've got for the podcast and then also obviously have to pay for the equipment and all that kind of crack. So... I've got some big plans for the podcast coming up as well, which I'll share with you in due course. But if you're in a position to do so and you want to support the podcast, then go and do it and I'll be extremely grateful. And Gurakhead Milamaygov to everyone who already supports the podcast. In Patreon, you can also share the podcast on the social media accounts and share it with your mates and get other people to listen to it and also get in touch if you have any feedback. Uh, plenty of people get in touch every week and thanks a million for doing that. I enjoyed the feedback from last week's episode, which was the interview with the Middle East Monitor on the Palestine Community Gym Project that we have, and also the newest addition to the podcast, which was reading out a chapter from Roald Dahl's book, Boy Tales of Childhood, which we're going to continue this week as well. So I'm going to put the outro music on, so to give you a chance to either carry on with your day and go on and do whatever you have planned next or to get settled in for an extra couple of minutes 
of soothing reading from the book of Roald Dahl. I haven't read this book yet, so we're kind of reading it together as such. And uh, I really enjoyed last week's one. I actually went away from last week's episode feeling quite zen. So here, um, I think maybe just a good way to finish up this episode is to go back to where we started from and look after yourselves, according to Gail. I definitely had to do a wee check-in with myself and look after myself in the last week or two to uh, bring the pace down a little bit, go back to basics and focus in on some some good um, pieces of self-care to keep the mental and physical health in check. So um, hopefully you guys can do the same. Anyway, I'll speak to you next week. Uh, for episode 53 I don't know what we're going to have for it yet but it is uh, going to be out at around 4 o'clock on Friday and I'm looking forward to seeing you there so gudjian kairala kardigil slangafoil agus kinyifiri This is chapter two of Roald Dahl's book, Boy Tales of Childhood. The chapter's called Kindergarten, 1922 to 1923, age six to seven. In 1920, when I was only three, my mother's eldest child, my own sister, Astri, died from appendicitis. She was seven years old when she died, which is also the age of my own eldest daughter, Olivia, when she died from measles 42 years later. Astri was far and away my father's favourite. He adored her beyond measure and her sudden death left him literally speechless for days afterwards. He was so overwhelmed with grief that when he himself went down with pneumonia a month or so afterwards, he did not much care whether he lived or died. If they had had penicillin in those days, neither appendicitis nor pneumonia would have been much of a threat. But with no penicillin or any other magical antibiotic cures, pneumonia in particular was a very dangerous illness indeed. The pneumonia patient, on about the fourth or fifth day, would invariably reach what was known as the crisis. The temperature soared and the pulse became rapid. The patient had the fight to survive. My father refused to fight. He was thinking, I'm quite sure, of his beloved daughter, and he was wanting to join her in heaven. So he died. He was 57 years old. My mother now had lost a daughter and a husband, all in the space of a few weeks. Heaven knows what it must have felt like to be hit with a double catastrophe like this. Here she was, a young Norwegian in a foreign land, suddenly having to face, all alone, the very gravest problems and responsibilities. She had five children to look after, three of her own and two two by her husband's first wife, and to make matters worse, she herself was expecting another baby in two months' time. 
A less courageous woman would almost certainly have sold the house and packed her bags and headed straight back to Norway with the children. Over there in her own country, she had her mother and her father willing and waiting to help her, as well as her two unmarried sisters. But she refused to take the easy way out. Her husband had always stated most emphatically that he wished all his children to be educated in English schools. They were the best in the world, he used to say. Better by far than the Norwegian ones. Better even than the Welsh ones, despite the fact that he lived in Wales and had his business there. He maintained that there was some kind of magic about English schooling and that the education it provided had caused the inhabitants of a small island to become a great nation and a great empire and to produce the world's greatest literature. No child of mine, he kept saying, is going to school anywhere else but in England. My mother was determined to carry out the wishes of her dead husband. To accomplish this, she would have to move house from Wales to England, but she wasn't ready for that yet. She must stay here in Wales for a while longer, where she knew people who could help her and advise her, especially her husband's great friend and partner, Mr. Adnison. But even if she wasn't leaving Wales quite yet, it was essential that she move to a smaller and more manageable house. She had enough children to look after without having to bother about a farm as well. So as soon as her fifth child, another daughter, was born, she sold the big house and moved to a smaller one a few miles away in Landoff. It was called Cumberland Lodge, and it was nothing more than a pleasant, medium-sized suburban villa. So it was in Landoff, two years later, when I was six years old, that I went to my first school. The school was a kindergarten run by two sisters, Mrs. Cornfield and Mrs. Tucker, and it was called Elm Tree House. It was astonishing how little one remembers about one's life before the age of seven or eight. I can tell you all sorts of things that happened to me from eight onwards, but only very few before that. I went for a whole year to Elm Tree House, but I cannot even remember what my classroom looked like, nor can I picture the faces of Mrs. Corfield or Mrs. Tucker, although I am sure that they were sweet and smiling. I do have a blurred memory of sitting on the stairs and trying over and over to tie one of my shoelaces, but that is all that comes back to me at this distance of the school itself. On the other hand, I can remember very clearly the journeys I made to and from the school because they were so tremendously exciting. Great excitement is probably the only thing that really interests a six-year-old boy and it sticks in his mind. In my case, the excitement centred around my new tricycle. I rode it to school on every day with my eldest sister riding on hers. No grown-ups came with us and I can remember oh so vividly how the two of us used to go racing at enormous tricycle speeds down the middle of the road and then, most glorious of all, when we came to a corner, we would lean to one side and take it on two wheels. All this, you must realise, was in the good old days when the sight of a motor car on the street was an event and it was quite safe for tiny children to go tricycling and whipping their way to school in the centre of the highway. So much then from my memories of kindergarten 62 years ago. It's not much, but it's all there is left.